Welcome to Ed Leaders, the podcast covering all the interesting ideas about leadership, strategy, culture, and the business of K-12 education. I'm your host, Luke Kelly, and joining me each week in the chair is my co-host and colleague, Matthew Irving. Today on Ed Leaders, we're celebrating the International Women's Day with a recording from a recent breakfast run by ASIL, the Australian Council of Education of Leaders. The panel featured our three system leaders here in WA. Valerie Gould, the Executive Director at the Association of Independent Schools of WA, Lisa Rogers, the Director General at the WA Department of Education, and Dr. Deborah Sace, the Executive Director of Catholic Education WA. And it was a ripper of a conversation. Before we get started, I'd like to take the opportunity to thank Matilda Jobert, the President of ASIL here in WA, who emceed the event and also ran around at the last minute and helped us get all the necessary permissions to put this recording on the Ed Leaders channel. So thank you to her and ASIL for letting us share the panel's discussion. We hope you enjoy today's episode, and Matt and I will be back next week for a regular episode of Ed Leaders. And until then, without further ado, let's get to it. My great pleasure to invite our first speaker, who is Valerie Gould, who is the Executive Director of the Association of Independent Schools. Now, Valerie started out as a teacher of economics and mathematics before she had what sounded like, um, and I know I've discussed this with her, an amazing 10 years over in New York with Ethan Young. And really coming back to Australia, being one of the, the, the forerunners of bringing um, computers, microcomputer applications, into schools, um, in a role that she's taken there. That then led her on to a role at the um, School Curriculum and Standards Authority. Um, and since then, she's been at ASWA for, for more than 20 years and doing a tremendous job there, um, serving on lots of national committees, um, including, of course, on the non-scheme committee that really just helped us to, to set a vision for education um, that it's more than just about getting a qualification, but it is really about educating you know, people for life. So I'm really excited to have a from you, so thank you very much. Good morning, everyone. I can assure you that's not on my board of steps. <laughs> I've already spent quite a few years in New York, and if anything had a real impact on my teaching when I came back, it was actually working seven years at school with what is now Western Young um, in a very different environment. Um, I would also like to take the opportunity to acknowledge the land on which we're meeting, the land of the Godjob people, and pay my respect to elders past, present, and emerging. So, what an exciting topic! What an exciting time to be in education. So, Albert Einstein said, In the midst of every crisis lies great opportunity. And I believe the events of 2020 certainly proved that to us. We were faced with unprecedented and presented issues to deal with at very, very short notice. And we responded exceedingly quickly. 2020 began like any other school year. Students were there, teachers were there, everyone was keen to get moving. And then within a few weeks, in fact, I do remember the first phone call I received from Lisa Rogers. It was on the Australia Day long weekend, saying, we have to get an incident support unit mobilised tomorrow morning at 8 o'clock. And things went, as you all know, were quite interesting from there. But we did respond very, very quickly. And when I'm talking to principals, and certainly I've spoke to quite a few principals last year many times, they said they probably, and their staff probably achieved, and their children achieved sometimes, two or three years' worth of growth in a few weeks. And so I think that's true, that if you need to do something, you can always find that ability to do it. 
Uh, and that doesn't really matter how old you are. So it wasn't just the young teachers and the very technologically savvy teachers. I shouldn't say that because I think I'm still technologically savvy. Um, it was all teachers had to. They may have been resisting in the past, but they had to make a change. We saw a quick change on how we worked, teaching remotely, and juggling a very different life. Just work, domestic life, childcare, and often teaching all happened in our homes. We adapted quickly. Teachers adapted quickly, students adapted quickly, and in fact, all workplaces adapted quickly. And many people found working from home worked really well, and teaching from home worked more really well, and learning from home worked well for some students. I think many of our young people today adapted quickly because they're much more technologically savvy than they would have been had this happened, say, 20, 30 years ago. But what it did point out was the inequities in our society the haves and the have-nots. So there were many young people who came from homes where there were multiple devices, they had good internet connections, they had good family support, and yet there were many other homes where there may have been one device with a few children, plus mum and dad, all fighting over it, poor internet connections, and little support from the family. And I think that's one of the challenges that we're facing as we go forward. This could happen again, it may not be COVID-19, but it could be something else, but it is a real challenge. How do we ensure that next time it happens, every child is supported? And I know, and I have to speak probably from the experience of the independent sector more so than the other two, but I know it happened in the other two sectors as well, that schools did try and address these issues. They sent home devices. They sent home dongles. Teachers contacted the students. They tried every different way to get hold of those students to provide them that support, provide the parents the support they need to support their young people. So some students actually reported they enjoyed working from home, particularly the older students. They found they were learning a lot more, they could do it through two or three hours, what took at school six. There were no distractions in class, they only had to concentrate on what they did not know, not what the rest of the class did not know. However, they did report missing friends and social contact that schools provided. This ended up in, in resulting in increasingly anxious lot of young students. So mental health issues became increasingly flagged. Actually, have some shown children. I left it on my table. That's okay. So the Commission for Children and Young People, Colin Pettit, did quite a lot of work about the impact of COVID. And he had the student voices speaking out. And I'm hoping that if you haven't had a look at it, go to the CCYP website. There's some really, really lovely stories, but also very sad stories there about students speaking out. Mental health is one of the biggest issues that he raised. Mental health, maintaining education. Keeping connection with friends, keeping family relationships going, very hard to do when you've got people in other states and people overseas. And I think quite a few of you in this room, like myself, I have a daughter in New York, she's been locked down now for over a year, and she's one of the hardest things, despite everything, having to wear a mask every time we go out and all sorts of things, is not being able to suddenly turn around and come back to Australia if she needs to be. Or, from my point of view, hop on a plane and go to her if she needs it. Students are also very concerned about their families surviving, the material basics, having the things they need, the food on the table, or whatever else that goes with it. So, we did respond very quickly last year. What we don't want to do is lose what we learned. It's an opportunity to say, rethink how we do things. We don't really want to go back to the old ways. Let's build upon what we've learned. So, what did we learn? Many schools see great opportunities in a blended learning model where students can work online and also face-to-face. -face. 
You're online, you can deliver content, deliver your content, deliver your knowledge, and your face-to-face -face is more the discussions, you're applying what you've learned to real life. You've got a few schools that are trialing, I don't know how you say trialing, but you give their older students that they actually work from home one day a week. They get face-to-face with teachers four days a week and work from home one day a week. Other schools are trialing uh, using their expert in one school to bring smaller class groups from other schools online to do it. We've learned, we learned this last year and they're still building this. It means that small schools, particularly regional, that can't run things like math specialists for two or three students, can in fact run it if they join with other schools. So there's many things we can learn. But it wasn't all through technology. We had to use a range of mediums. So for younger students, and I said to schools with a particular educational philosophy, like Montessori schools and Steiners, teachers there created great work packs with activities that required high levels of problem solving to find a solution. One of my favourites is this one. Develop a way for a ping pong ball to travel from the front door to the back door of your house with no human intervention. <laughs> you think about what that means. I mean, I, the family may not like But it, it requires a lot of mathematics, of building, of design, of physics to try and make it happen. Forget about the rest of the family. Um, they did take a lot of work developing these work packs, and some teachers put extreme efforts. Uh, a friend of my daughter's was teaching last year, still is, in Victoria, and she was taking videos of herself and live streaming them to the students. She was finally called in by her principal and told to stop because she was doing such a good job, the other teachers were getting concerned. <laughs> the parents were saying, we want this and what's her name to teach our kids because her stuff's really good and so-and-so is not good, can't we all have her? Yeah, interesting, interesting dynamic for the principal. <laughs> so we saw people holding online meetings, um, like some people in this room, I can see some over there on the left, certainly my two colleagues. We spent an awful lot of time on planes in previous years. I've not taken one plane since last February, and that was restaurants. Um, they travel. Has the world stopped turning? No. Qantas was not looking quite as healthy as I used to look, but that's about the evidence. <laughs> Um, so we have learned, we have learned to hold meetings, to hold lessons online. Students have learned how to share things online through chat discussions, through using chat lines, through sharing screens. We have adapted. Let's not lose this. So what are the challenges and how can these become opportunities? Um, some of you may be familiar with uh, Martin Prindle, he has the Prindle Associates. He developed a document called The Future of Education 2020, and there he identifies, I won't say new group of students, but Generation Alpha, born between 2010 and 2024, comparing it to Gen Z, 1995 to 2009. Gen Alpha have grown up with screens. That's how you connect with people. They also think when you get a jar of Nutella, it has your name on it. <laughs> they have the personalised, customisation of everything. In Gen Zs, they've seen this happen, but it's been a rise. Your Gen Alphas are more persistent, they're better at sticking to the task, better at asking questions so they can solve the problem and learning from failure. Your Gen Zs don't do that. They give up. They suffer in silence. So they don't achieve what they can do. And you've got these students all in your classes. So it's about tailoring and personalising that learning experience to take account of what sort of students you have in place. And I know we've all been doing this for years. And certainly I used to when I, when I was teaching. But, um, I think we've now got many, much more research to say what makes some of these young people tick. 
So we have another challenge is balancing, as I said before, the well-being and curriculum. COVID brought the importance of mental health really to the fore. Um, and start, probably the start of this year did help. Uh, so end of January, kids are all fired up about going to school. Some students are starting school for the first time. I have a couple of grandchildren who are starting a new school for the first time. Little photos of their uniforms that weekend, all they're very exciting and um, didn't happen with it. I think that did cause a lot of grief for them. Um, of course, in our sector, we actually had some schools that had already started in January. And so when the Premier announced our Christmas holidays for another week, yeah, there was interesting industrial issues to deal with. But it, there, there are quite a lot of mental health issues. I think the opportunity we have now, though, there is so much more focus and so much more acknowledgement of the importance of mental health on young people and all of society. So people are more likely to ask for help and there are more resources available both within the schools and in the broader society. I think that it's sad to say we need this to happen to make people really focus on this, but that's the truth. Unfortunately, I don't know how many of you read the paper this morning, there was a note in there that one in three calls to Lifeline go unanswered at the moment. So the demand for support is increasing, and even though there are more counsellors in Lifeline, they still can't meet that demand. So that's a, that, is a, that is a challenge for us. Another challenge will be there will be further lockdowns. Doesn't matter what happens. We saw that a few weeks ago. Um, all we need is another case. <coughs> Hopefully, by the time we're all vaccinated, that won't be on the cards, but we never know. It could be more. We have got better. We know how what to do. We've been there, we've done that, we can respond. Gatherings online are not the same as face to face. But there's been birthday parties online, cocktail parties online, lots and lots of board meetings and AGMs. We can get better. But it's not only challenges related to COVID that we have to look at. There are many other challenges facing education, some of which have been around for a while, some of which have come more to the fore in the last few weeks. The Alice Springs Declaration talks quite strongly about, and that came out end of December 9, 2019, really supporting Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander learners reach their potential and recognise their contribution to what is fundamental to Australia's social, economic and cultural well-being. We have made strides in this area. We have a long way to go. Our young people are, on the whole, a long way behind. Our Aboriginal young people are a long way behind their non-Aboriginal counterparts. We need to close that gap. We, that's a huge challenge for all of us, regardless of the environment they're in, but I do believe that's something we all have to meet. Another one, which is, um, I think it was actually Referendum the same-sex marriage brought this to the fore. Navigating gender identity within the school community is a challenge for students, teachers and school community. I've done a lot of work with school boards in this area where they're trying to develop policies that both meet their philosophy and ethos, but also ensure that all children are safe, that every child in their school has an opportunity, that there is an, an environment in the school which every person feels safe and every young person is respected, regardless of what their background, be it racial differences, religious differences, or sexual differences. Because we all know the impact on mental health of not catering for diverse young people is massive. I'm in two minds to raise this, but I will. There's been a lot of discussion the last couple of weeks about sexual consent. Some of this was sparked through what's been going on in Canberra, what went on in Canberra, what's been on the media the last few days, but also the reports from some eastern state schools where some incidents of inappropriate behaviour were not handled quite as well. So there was a petition out there about sexual consent. 
I think this is a challenge for school because parents often feel this is not the school's domain. However, it comes down on the schools if their young people behave inappropriately. And so the schools, while they may not want to take this on, in the end, like so many social issues, end up having to do something. So I think the opportunity here is to start a cultural change where it's not only females, I'm quoting the guy from AI, where it's not only females that have to make sure they stay safe and look after each other, but we actually have to work with males too, so that they know that being a perpetrator is not okay, that they are responsible for the safety of everyone. So in brief, more lockdowns, that we're better prepared. Mental health of students and staff, uncertainty about the future has increased this anxiety. Um, and I think we've got to work very hard on that one. Adequate resourcing has to be in place to make sure we can address that issue of inequities, making sure every young person feels safe and included in the school life due to whatever their diverse background or culture may be. And be agile, keep being agile. We don't know what the next crisis will be. This one could come back again. Uh, we have, must be agile. So build on our experiences of 2020. Can I try and bring students from different schools together? Share educational experiences, not just from my schools, from different schools. Can learn a lot. Yet we'll focus on mental health and a stronger recognition of the importance of support from community and standing in touch. And to finish, here's another challenge and opportunity. Many adults did find working from home work. So in my office, I've got 70 staff in the actual office, about. Um, quite a few, we always had working from home as an option till the end of 19. Suddenly, early 2020, everyone had to work from home for a while. We now have uh, probably about 60% of staff working from home a couple of days a week. And I think this is quite common in many households. So you now have families and then it's changing. You get a better, you, know, you don't have to travel as much, you get a better family life balance, all sorts of things. It does change dynamics. So as children, and perhaps one member of the adult goes to work, the other partner may in fact be staying home and working at home. So it does change the dynamics, but there is an opportunity here. The decreased travel time, the work from home partner can do laundry and cook dinner. <laughs> Um, I'm going to ask everyone to, to keep hold of any questions you've got because we'll ask all the speakers at the end to come up for a, a panel discussion where we can um, tackle some questions. Um, so I'm going to invite our next speaker up straight away, who's Lisa Rogers. So Lisa, Director General of the Department of Education in Western Australia. And really, one of the things that struck me when I was reading through the, the, the short resumes, and apologies for the errors I've made there <laughs> earlier, Valerie, but as I was reading through the resumes, I realised that all three of these leaders that we're hearing from today has led extraordinary lives of public service, of really dedicating their lives to the great good. And I don't think that's been easy. I think there's been many challenging and difficult days, but I think we are all the grateful recipients of that life of service that the three of you are the example that you've, you've set to us as, as real servant leaders of, of setting yourselves not up to be in control or having a power base, but be more there to enable and to serve others. Now, as I was um, reading Lisa's resume, it's, it's really, a, as I said, an extraordinary life of serving other people. It started um, as an intelligence officer in the British Army, 
um, roles ranging from being a psychologist working with child mental health to positions of executive leadership um, in New Zealand, um, working as a deputy secretary of education there and having responsibility for curriculum, for teaching, for learning, literally from early childhood all the way through to tertiary education. A massive responsibility. Um, and then, of course, we were very lucky to get her over to Australia, where she was the Chief Executive Officer of the Australian Institute of Teaching and School Leadership in Melbourne. Did amazing work there, um, and now we're even luckier to have her here with us in Australia. So, Lisa Rogers, it's really our privilege to, to hand the stage to you. Thank you. Thank you, Ms. Hilda. I feel like the lucky one because actually. I've landed here and I'm staying. What a great, this is the world's best kept secret, right? Um, so I would also like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which we meet and pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging. So um, in terms of staying, my daughter uh, did come with me and then decided that all her mates at 20 years old uh, were back in New Zealand, so she was going to go back and, um, you know, party with her mates. So this morning my day started with a phone call first thing uh, to her. Because last night they had an earthquake, I think it was about 7.4, and then a following an earthquake about 8.1. And so at that point they were just preparing to um, you know, get up the hill basically because of the tsunami warnings. And so I was coming here and I thought, I changed my speech a little bit. I was going to say, what a shocker of a year, wasn't it? Last year it was, it was incredible. Um, and the start of this year was quite interesting. But it just struck me. At, at what point uh, in the last few years um, has anything been remotely normal and stable? So if we think about the GFC, 9-11, Trump, dare I mention Trump, you know, <laughs> earthquakes in Christchurch, a pandemic, you know, the first week of this year in terms of schools. So we had the lockdown and the pandemic, but we also had the floods across the Kimberley and the Pilgrim. We had the fires that were going on. And so it just, you know, I'm standing here and I'm thinking, there is no normal in here. And this is actually the best case for making sure that our uh, skills of agility and the ability to adapt are really, really finely tuned. And what we need to make sure of is the systems and structures around us work so we can try and re-establish conditions for us to continue to teach. So the first thing uh, that I think is a challenge and an opportunity is how we respond to risk management. It's incredibly boring. And when I, um, <laughs> when I um, started in my job, I walked into 151 Royal Street. It was really, really fortuitous because the day, my first day of work as the DG was Australia Day. And so nobody was in the office. And you know that awful first day where everybody, you know, you walk in and everybody looks at you. You know, they're kind of measuring you up a little bit, looking at your lunch bag, and you know, your desk is that way up. So nobody was in the office, so I was just able to find my way. You know, that grand, you know, up the escalators, find that grand office, and I did. Nobody was looking at me. Thank goodness. And um, I sat in that chair, and I'd read so much over Christmas. Um, so, so much about the system, and I'd learned quite a lot from being an eight about WA, and I've got a lot of family here, so I had a bit of background. But I turned around in the chair, uh, and I looked out over the park, and I thought, what's going to come at me? 
like, you know, what's actually, I'm here, got the job, it's going to happen tomorrow, um, and am I prepared for it? Well, you could probably guess the things that happened, you know, the next day on the Tuesday, and they happened the day after that, and the day after that, and the day after that. And the things largely that I deal with on a day-to-day -day basis are things like child safety, um, child behaviour, you know, children behaving badly, staff safety, staff behaviour. And so when I look back at my files that I was given over Christmas to read, lovely files they were, I had 35 pages of, um, a, a, 35 A3 pages of risk. I couldn't possibly hold them all in my head. But now I stand here before you today and across the executive, um, we've basically got 10 risks. That's it. And we need to get really, really good at making sure that we can attend to those risks. So either they don't happen or when they do happen, actually, we can, we can get on top of it really fast and look after our people. So number one, risk, child safety. Number two, staff safety. And then all the rest, you know, the kind of risks, but nothing like those two. And that's around infrastructure and property, uh, finance, ICT, all of those types of things. But actually it's 10 risks that we're dealing with every single day and you'll be dealing with them too. And the thing that is really important is making sure that we get on top of them quickly. Michael Fullen talks about a picture, you know, there's a canvas. And with this canvas there is a frame. And our job is to paint on that canvas. And our job in terms of painting on that canvas is painting in regards to teaching and learning. That's our job. That's what we have to do. But if the frame falters, there is no way that we can paint on that canvas. And so we have to put on canvas. So week one uh, of this term, we had the lockdown, fires, floods, uh, whatever was going on. And our mission basically was to write the frame as fast as we possibly could, uh, look after those staff, look after those children, and get back to teaching and learning. So Monday morning at our leadership meeting, um, uh, on the second week of this term, all schools were open, it was phenomenal. All schools were open and we were sitting there talking about teaching and learning and achievement. And so in, in terms of one of the opportunities and challenges, we've got really, really good at responding to risk. So we've got some of the trackings of it, we've got an incident support unit, uh, we know what to do in terms of our policy and procedures. And the one thing that we do quite differently now is we act in a different way. And so some of the things that are different in terms of our actions will be, we acknowledge now that we don't know everything about a particular situation. We can't possibly know everything about a particular situation. And often what will happen in a school is a school won't tell anyone anything until they actually know what's going on. Yeah? We don't know that piece of information. Well, we've acknowledged the fact we're never going to know things, and so we just communicate what we know when we know it. We've also acknowledged that it's really okay not to, uh, not to have a beautifully crafted policy that's taken us you know, all year to develop in order to make a policy position, see how it works, and adapt it. So this whole notion of flying the plane and landing it, you know, there's a, that used to be a bad thing in the policy world. It's wonderful. Because one of the things that we did, we WebEx directly with principals, we said to principals, what's going on on the ground? Uh, principals told us, we got all the feedback, and we just adapted the policy setting. So it was kind of from the classroom to the cabinet table. It was, it was absolutely impressive. So we've changed the way uh, that we behave in these situations, and those behaviours actually allowed us to respond quite differently. But one thing that really surprised me in terms of managing this risk 
And I never, I never thought this would happen. And that was the power of principals in being able to lead their communities. So you remember the days when we were literally, we were watching mass graves being uh, dug here yeah, uh, with the pandemic. We were all at home having conversations about funerals, right? And what we wanted to happen. And that was our absolute reality. We were, we were pretty scared. Lots of people were getting lots of information from the news bulletins, from social media, and people were confused, they were anxious, um, and, and they didn't know quite which way to turn. A lot of the feedback that we've got from communities, from parents and families, is that their one source of truth was the school. And so we were given kind of moment by moment information to that school, and that school and those school leaders were making adaptive decisions in the moment, and in that moment, they were giving the community confidence in terms of the fact that we've got this. And the kids came back to school. And the kids felt safe. And families got a degree of normality. And so we quickly righted a position whereby things started to feel normal. And as things started to feel normal, we started to respond in quite a, in quite a positive way to the virus and we got on top of it. So the power of the school leadership in leading a community and making sure they feel safe, um, their anxieties are relieved, and they're secure in the knowledge, actually, that there's somebody there that they can turn to. Incredibly powerful. And uh, indeed, I'd argue that education got our economy up and running because we got kids back to school. And that's because our school leaders made people feel safe. Okay, so that was number one. So opportunities and challenges. The other one, and Valerie's touched on this, is kind of the, um, that the how we learn, yeah? And of course, everyone now has a deeper appreciation in regards to the benefits of a digital pedagogy, right? Without a shadow of a doubt. Side, our School of Isolated and Distance Education has become probably one of the most important schools that we have, yeah? It's so critically important, and they were delivering online lessons, but actually it's just opened up the opportunity and it's given us permission to teach differently. Not only teach students differently, but also think about professional learning and development. So there is absolutely no reason why all of our teachers can't access the best, best expertise in terms of professional learning and development opportunities um, from our teachers through SIDE. So it could be one of our highlights in terms of um, a school for teachers. That said, I think we need to capitalise on the opportunity that people have realised that there is no way sitting at your kitchen table with your students, with your children, you are ever going to match the expertise of teachers. Okay. They are masters at engaging kids. Um, they are absolute experts in terms of delivery of learning, and I think we've got a catalyzing effect that people are starting to realise that. So all the time I was in Axel, the work that we did in terms of how are we going to get the profession valued, well, that was turned around. Um, every, everyone was going, can you please just take our kids back? We are so happy. <laughs> um, on parents, though, the interesting thing with parents was we found a group of parents that were really, really good at distance education. So the Isolated Parents and Children Association are phenomenal. Now, this has been a bit of a marginalised group before, but when you sit down with those parents, they actually know how to support teachers in delivering distance education. And so for me, I'm starting to think about in regards to the department, what do we need to put in place to ensure that our parents and communities can engage effectively with us? And so it's not just about how do we manage complaints, but actually, what are some other things that we can do to support those families engage well with us? I think it's also worth a conversation. Um, 
and I know this might come back to bite me, but I think it's worth a conversation in terms of what are the conditions by which parents come into schools. Now, I never thought uh, that it would have been a good thing to keep parents off of school sites. But we closed the door to parents. Parents loved it, teachers loved it, and kids learned more. And so here we are in this strange situation whereby we've been saying, come onto the school site, come onto the school site, you're absolutely welcome, open our doors, it's absolutely fa fabulous. But the bottom line is, to some degree, it did impact in regards to teaching and learning. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't be inviting parents onto our school sites. Please don't quote me saying that. <laughs> um, but I do think it's worth a conversation about actually how do we, as a group of educators, support our parents to best engage in terms of education. I know that'll get me in trouble. <laughs> the last one in terms of distance education, and again, Valerie mentioned this, we had a lot of kids that just stayed at home and learned at home. So our School of Medical and Mental Health, um, we've only normally got a, few, you know, a handful of kids uh, that are supported by those teachers, but we ended up with hundreds and hundreds of kids being supported by the School of Medical and Mental Health. And actually, that was the right place for them to learn, and they did learn. And so here we are, we've got an opportunity to think about learning without limits. You know, we can think about learning uh, with, without thinking about the school gate, you know, <clears throat> learning anytime, anyplace, anywhere. Now, that's a huge, hugely bold vision. Um, but I think that's an opportunity for us to, uh, to capitalise on. Okay, uh, number, number three in terms of opportunities and challenges, and this comes from John Hand. So I was listening to John the other day, you may have seen his article, I think he's recently published this. So he was saying, um, he presented us with a challenge that uh, COVID has given us this golden ticket, and it's the kind of best golden ticket that we've ever had. Um, I've been in education 20 years, and, and it is, because all of a sudden, we've just got an excuse to do things differently, and not many people can argue with us, right? Because everything is so changeable that we can just get away with a few things. And so he basically said, uh, the, the, you know, the proposition is we've got a golden ticket. We've proved uh, that if we have to change, we can, yeah? So if you think about the teachers and schools and all of the staff, Trying to, can you imagine? In fact, we've been trying to, we've been trying to move um, from one platform to another with various different um, uh, platforms and applications. And the paperwork around it, it's going to take us two years to, you know, move people from this to that and blah blah. blah. It's, you lose your will to live. Um, <laughs> but, um, but actually, people like within two weeks, right? Even those that would be the hardest to change within two weeks, they were zooming, right? They were webexing. Like we had, like our WebExes, we had 800 principals routinely now on a WebEx, yeah? Um, I thought that probably I annoyed principals when I called a WebEx at 4.30 on Friday night, Friday afternoon, <laughs> um, that wasn't so flash, but I surpassed myself when we called a WebEx at 7.30 on a Sunday night. <laughs> but the point is, we adapted, right? People just talk to this technology. We've proved that we can change if we have to, right? And so for me, as the DG, I'm thinking, crikey, this is an incredible opportunity here. People are up for change. They can change. So, on to my kind of third, and this is my third and fourth. The greatest challenge for me is to capture and keep the behaviours that we saw during things like the pandemic and the floods and the fires and whatever else, right? And it's not about working in a crisis. The things that I saw were, um, 
first and foremost, every conversation that we had, we had about the kids and the staff. So you know often you go to a meeting and you kind of talk about, you talk around the house for the first 15 or five minutes and then the last five minutes you get onto the thing that you're meant to be talking about. No, people walked in, absolutely student focused. Right, what do we need to do to make sure that actually those particular students are supported and get access to whatever they need? Right, so first and foremost, the conversation started with the kids and, and, it, was, um, uh, and it was fast, yeah? The second thing was, we brought expertise together. So again, first week of um, term one, so I had the call about 11.30, I think it was, on a Sunday morning. I'd just done a media interview to say, we're good, uh, all taps are flushed, all the schools are built, maintenance all done, tick, tick, tick. We've got a, we've got a teacher in front of every class. It was an absolutely uh, stunning interview. Uh, and then I put the phone down and I had this call going into lockdown. So by one o'clock, that was 11.30, by one o'clock, we were literally, uh, Deborah, Valerie and I, um, we as, three, as a group of three organisations were sat in the boardroom working out collectively how on earth we're going to get this done. And so there were no silos of expertise. It wasn't about competition. It was just about getting the right expertise in the room to deliver the right solution for those staff and those people. And whether that be at the top of the organisation or whether that be across the board, we had Fiona, um, who's in charge of professional standards and conduct and SIDS, you know, investigations. Her job was get things like hand sanitizer and masks, right? Incredibly good at, in terms of logistics, just get it done. So we've got the right expertise in the room uh, and we focused on the job in hand. And so my challenge is how do I capitalize on that way of behaving to ensure that we behave in regards to that, uh, and in, sorry, in regards to teaching and learning? So I've been in education for 20 years. I know I've seen that many curriculum reviews. Um, I've seen that many mandated assessments. I've seen debates about funding. I've seen debates about class sizes. You know, all of those things that you have seen year on year, you know? Some of those things that you have waited out. Not one of those makes a difference in terms of kids' achievement and their progress. The thing that makes a difference basically the moment-by-moment -moment decisions that teachers are making in the classroom, led by professional learning uh, through that principle. And they're having transparent, honest, accurate conversations about the data and what they're seeing in regards to kids and their learning. They are honest, brutal, challenging conversations, and the conversations are about what are we going to do about this? Where's the expertise that we've got across our school? How can we capitalise on that expertise? And how can we make sure that actually we're attending to that student first and foremost? So I think our biggest challenge and our biggest opportunity is to continue to act like we're in the middle of a crisis in regards to kids' achievement and progress. If you look at some of the statistics, they're pretty awful. We are one of the fastest improving jurisdictions across the whole of Australia. We also are probably one of the best education systems in the world. But we've still got kids that are, walking out, that are walking out of our system early. We know that actually the longer we retain children, the better off they are. And we've got too many kids walking out without a qualification. So for me, that's probably the one challenge that we, that we have to face and are yet to face and will be my focus this year.
Thanks very much for that, Lisa. I love that that reminder to us just of what um, John Atty calls that we shouldn't get bogged down by the politics of distraction, but that we really do need to make sure that we, we do focus on on what makes the biggest difference, and that's student learning, and that should be our, our core and our only focus, really. And all other things should, should enable that. So thank you for that. Um, and now it's my pleasure to invite our third speaker up, Dr. Deborah Sace. So once again, somebody who's who's um, had such a lifetime of, of, of serving in the educational community. I was really impressed by the range of subjects that you've taught. Yeah. So I, I've got on my list here anything from physical education, religious studies, health, biological science, so really across the spectrum there. And of course did her PhD at Notre Dame University in educational leadership. So I'm really excited to, to hear what you've got to, to share for us. Thanks, Thanks It's there, but um, thank you very much for the opportunity. I'm tilting it since I can't help myself. It is a PowerPoint. Valerie and Lisa speak so eloquently that I need to keep to the time. I'm very conscious that you need to go back some time to schools. <laughs> um, so I really appreciate ACL for this opportunity to bring together leaders. Um, I also would like to acknowledge um, Lisa and Valerie, and working with them in system leadership has been just extraordinary. I've learned an enormous amount. And the capacity of us to co-labour, collaborate, is really, it's just served us so well in Western Australia. Um, so that young child is what we're about, okay? And in saying that, that child is represented over the, I don't know how many thousands of children in Western Australia. Catholic education is about being child-focused. We have a very strong faith base, and we don't ever deny that, but we are about children and enabling them to grow and be the people that they're called to be. But I also want to acknowledge and thank you, those who are leading schools at the moment. Um, it's been a trial, hasn't it? It's been quite extraordinary. And I'm really, every time I, you know, you talk about WebEx, we talk about Catholic Ed teams. Every time I talk with principals, they say thank you. Thank you for the leadership that you're providing these young people, enabling them to be learners, enabling them to be safe, enabling them to be the best that they can be. So Catholic education serves 78,000 children very focused on young people and very much committed to working collaboratively in our state. And I do want to touch on this and not go through chapter and verse, but the Alice Springs Declaration brings us all together here. These are our national goals for education. And it's important that we keep the long view of this is what the outcome is for these children, to be um, provide an education system, and both Lisa and Valerie talked about, where excellence and equity are core. And we learned that in the last couple of years, things are not equitable. Also, it reminds us that we want our young people, in order to be contributing members of society in a really positive and enhancing way and to grow our society, they have to be confident learners, they have to feel safe, they have to be committed to lifelong learning in whatever shape that looks like. And please don't worry about lots of words, but there are a lot of verbs in that statement, aren't there? Um, to achieve excellence, to be equitable, every student, um, to transform lives, to realise their potential. It's a, it's a profound statement that has come together, um, building on from the Melbourne Declaration, and how much have we actually actualised this? Well, I think in the last two years we've really committed to serving this. Uh, I think in order for our young people to thrive, we have to keep that very clearly in our mind. But what's really interesting, this statement, part of the statement, it talks about leaders. It talks about the complexity of being an educator. 
of being a leader in order to achieve those goals, national goals for education. And I think that's an important part, is that what I want to focus on is an opportunity about leadership development in order to meet those goals. They serve us, our students so well, they serve our systems so well. But it also talks about partners with parents, and I'm glad Lisa talked about parents. You know, I'm a secondary teacher by trade, and gosh, when you have that angry mum parent, now I get a lot of them coming through, well, not that many. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the regulators around the back table there. But, you know, parents are just phenomenal in what they have to do, and they're trying to hold attentions of, of growing those children. However, the school is a partner in that parenting, and there is a bit of a lock around what we do. We can't do everything, and our schooling systems across the state do a lot, but we can't do everything. And I think it's very important that we do engage with our parents in really meaningful ways and enable them, and in some instances, empower them to be the parents that they are called to be. You know, there's an African proverb, I think, that Hillary Clinton made aware to all of us that it takes a village to, you know, to grow a child. Well, I think it takes a whole community to educate a child. And so schools are part of a broader community and families. And in our, our faith-based education, our parishes are very important pieces in all of that. So I found this title as I was preparing for this fire flood play, almost biblical, you'd agree? And in saying that, you know, I found this really interesting that the, in 2020, the writers have come together to talk about this cultural phenomena or how a society is responding to these phenomenal periods of times. And it's really interesting um, to record how we've responded. And I, I attest to what Valerie and Lisa have said. As, a, as educators, we have enabled our, our schools and our systems to really thrive in this environment and the agility that we've had. But we also know this, VUCA world, okay? Volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity. I think that's every day we face this in whatever shape or form in terms of our environments we work. But these are, how do we lead in these VUCA times? And this is not a new term, this came out in the 1990s but we're really focusing it on now because our leadership has to respond to this. Our families are responding. Our children have to understand what this means. And I really appreciate what Valerie talked us through the alpha child because I think that's a different, now a different breed of young person coming through and then how do we cater for them to be these contributing members to society? So Lisa said this, you know, what's normal? Well, what's the next normal? We're in a constant change at the moment, a change period, and how do we land on this? So we have to step up to this and lead amidst these challenging circumstances. And we have to be very comfortable with the uncomfortable. That's our reality now. So, you know, take off that comfy coat that you had at the back of your chair in that classroom or that office. It has to change now, and we have to be on the front foot, ready to respond, because things change rapidly. Now, I put this in front of you. It says there by Harris, there's no blueprint for leadership. We're getting a sense of that. And I did studies back in you know, 2000 on leadership, leadership development preparation. And what is the leader? Well, it's changing all the time, isn't it? So there is no blueprint. And so you, in our school communities and in our offices, have to deal with these sorts of challenges. The first one there, um, this young person, 13-year-old girl, and the, the chief, um, WA's chief psychiatrist said, we fail this person as a system, as a health system, perhaps even an education system. This young person took a life, she walked out in front of the car in front of her mother. So it's such a tragic, tragic circumstance. And you know, in our positions, we certainly get when a child does take their life, the impact on that is phenomenal. 
And we cannot, not just that family that lose a child, a son or a daughter, but also the community, social media, it's out before we even know what's happening because of, of the way kids communicate today. We also had this um, recently in one of our schools. The media played on these these terrible events where our young people are, are, you know, have circumstances that occur within the school, but it's, it's portrayed in such a way that there is a huge story behind every media um, uh, announcement that they make. This one, you know, um, we know as educators that we have red tape in front of us. We constantly look at the accountabilities and also the responsibilities we have. And how do we mitigate that against our educators and leaders in our schools to enable them to be the head teacher, to get back into the classroom and focus on those wonderful goals of enabling that young person to grow and to develop and be the best they can be. So how do we do that? I totally attest to Fulham's, you know, frame and canvas. We do need a frame. We, we're not loose out there. We have regulators. We certainly have um, funding, certainly non-government schools. We have to respond to those sorts of things in a, in a really um, honest, transparent way, and we do. That's right. <laughs> but in saying that, there is so much more freedom in that canvas, as Lisa articulated, that the, the context and having the empathy of that context or that school community is so profound. We also have this. This made the headlines a couple of weeks ago. Again, a massive story behind this. You know, we have these care schools, curriculum and re-engagement education, where children are not feeding mainstream education. They don't come through a Catholic school with a nice, you know, uniform through those gates and there to learn. Some of our children absolutely struggle for whatever circumstances. You know, whether it be family circumstances, whether it's just be personal sense of being, who they are. And so we have these different learning environments. And I am just in awe of those staff and leaders who, who are involved with care schools because that is such an important piece to these children's lives. One child's life has changed from this. And yet how it's presented because of this flare-up for that period of time, and let's be honest, our young people are so tech-savvy, they put things up very quickly to their detriment. So how do we support our children in understanding, look, let's just calm down here, let's look at what we can do to support you. And that's how do we diffuse these situations? And you know, the, um, the director of this particular school, he says, you know, it's, um, they're broken babies. I mean, that's his language. But these kids come there broken, where do they go? We know, and I'm not an economic rationalist, but we know if young people are engaged with earlier, I'm talking primary education, early education, the life trajectory, the educational outcomes, the possibilities are huge. But if we stymie them back there in whatever shape or form, whatever the circumstances, we pay the price much later, financial price, but also for that young person's life and their family's life. And yet there's more. Do you know anything about this? <laughs> the workforce data. We're getting a snapshot now of who are our workforce in education. And we're very conscious that not everyone's wanting to put a hand up to become a teacher or leader. And so it's really important how we grow our workforce in education is crucial for the future of not just our young people, but for, um, for Australia and we're global citizens as well. So how do we attract people into the world of education? Because you and I both know that it's the most rewarding area when you know those young people and how they leave our school communities and, and what they go and what they do and what they do to contribute to society. It's such an, uh, I'm just pleased I'm a teacher by trade. Um, Moving on. So in this, there are two parts to what I would say opportunities, just focusing on two, notwithstanding what Valerie and Lisa have said. 
As I said, there's no blueprint for education, but this time, in the last couple of years, have given us a really important viewpoint on how we reimagine school leadership. And I draw on um, the work from Elliot and Hollingsworth, you know, how we can look at building the collective efficacy of our leaders. And as I said, you know, the stories of the last couple of, well, not even two years, 18 months, less than that, um, how we've come together collaboratively and working, you know, conjointly to enable our young people to learn, it's just been phenomenal. So how we can look at um, our leadership to think creatively and lead, as I said, there's no leadership program, tick a box and here you go. It's how do we grow this, um, in this VUCA world, how do we grow our leaders to respond and not feel scared and get used to the uncomfortable. You know, when you go in, park your car and walk in through the school gates, the day will be different as Lisa articulated for her day, for Valerie's day, for my day. You never know what's coming when you open up your, your you know, emails or look at that text message and then Lisa contacts you, let's be honest. <laughs> <laughs> Say working in that uh, in that space of moving very quickly has just been incredible joy. As I said, a lot of learning has taken place. We need our leaders to be optimistic people, and this too shall pass because it's not always going to be like this. And when you get into, and I talk during the time to principals, and particularly principals in you know composite schools, K to twelve, I said when I find the secondary is too much, I go down to <laughs> and the children like me. <laughs> And I think the young people give us so much joy, and sure, we have some children struggling, but we, we get over that, we work with them. But our leaders need to understand that to, to be tenacious people, to be optimistic people, because the staff need that. Because when you go out those school doors, it's not that sweetness and light out there. So it's a very important aspect of how the, you know, the profile of leader can't be wearing that you know, black hat all the time. You've got to be, these kids deserve more. We all deserve more when people are sort of joyful in their, how they look at things. Uh, the other one is to work through people to achieve outcomes and with people. And this is what we've learned certainly at the system level. Um, we had a Catholic education person based at the um, Department of Education at that incident, um, I keep remember, forgetting that support unit. You know, we get hot, hot off the press. <laughs> then we put our little baptism Catholic version. <laughs> 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 and can I say it doesn't weigh too much? But um, we know how our leaders operate and what the information they need. So I'm very grateful to have that collaboration that occurs there. It's very important. And I can't see us going back. We, we thought we were working really well collaboratively prior to COVID, but it's really cemented how we do business. And uh, we work at 6 p.m. on that particular day, on that Sunday, that we got the, for the lockdown, uh, Minister came in. <laughs> Can I say this, Lisa? We all scrammed to put our masks on. Can <laughs> I say? Very, you know, Lisa gave everyone masks because I didn't have a mask with me. Came straight out of the shops, <laughs> buying those toilet rolls. <laughs> Coming into that room, no, everyone has a toilet roll. There has to be some perks to this job, let me tell you. But nevertheless, the work, the way we work, and it, it's just not a competition, as Lisa said. Um, and it's not about telling us what to do, it's about co, you know, co-labouring to get the best outcomes for our young people. We always, with our leadership, we always have to be empathetic with staff. And you know, those grumpy parents that I deal with, or grumpy principals or grumpy minister at times, 
you know, we have to realise there's so much pressure in these areas and we have to walk through these, these really in a very, very respectful way because this will pass and then you've got to heal that relationship. But nevertheless, to be empathising and respectful for people is just key to leadership and we know that. And the one about, you know, media, as I highlighted, I took all of those um, snapshots of those issues and challenges from the media. And so how we work with media is something in the forefront of my thinking. And I know that we, you know, collaboratively will look at how do we work with media to give them a more positive outlook and story. Because if they just look for that little grab that's going to cause controversy, sell a paper perhaps, and yet our children deserve far more. Because at the end of the day, that young person in Nagel who did that particular incident, um, you know, take away the safety and all of that, she has to, to move forward with that. She's year 12. You know, and so how do we enable media to present stories that it's not about the selling of that newspaper, this is a child's life, a family's life, a school community's life, you know, so the trajectory can be damaged when these sorts of things um, occur. But the media is our friend, but we also can have them sometimes not supporting us. And the second area is this one, and I love the work of um, how we look at the OECD's work and Schleicher Andres Schleicher's work. You know, technology is there, it's with us, and we're so grateful in Catholic Ed, our platform is a very stable platform. And as I said, Lisa talked to all of the principals through WebEx, we were able to talk through, you know, that, that faithful um, Sunday this term, to call a meeting the next morning with all our principals. And mind you, we were able to text SMS everyone saying, be ready for this meeting because things are changing. And so technology is there to support, but also to enable our young people, because Alpha Generation, they don't know any different. So how are we going to prepare them um, to, to work in a world of work post-school. We've got to keep that in mind as well. We, we learned also one of the key elements has been an autonomous learner. And I think our parents appreciate that, but certainly how that young child can actually inquire for themselves and research for themselves and, and be in that space for themselves. That's what we want because that's how we get lifelong learners. We also want to, as I said earlier, um, the, the relationship with parents and the partnership with parents. We also want to increase, you know, the multi-sectoral coordination. It was fantastic that, you know, we were able to speak to the Chief Health Officer on issues pertaining that we needed. And, and I work very closely with the two principal association presidents. I meet with them fortnightly. probably call it my therapy, but nevertheless. <laughs> and they were able to speak with, you know, um, uh, the Chief Health Officer to just find out what does this actually mean. So the connectivity and the access was phenomenal, and I don't think it'll go, well, it can't go backwards because we, we're still in this fluke of time and we need to be responding as quickly as we can. So again, Lisa spoke very well about the teachers. Teachers now, you know, it took two years to do, it was off the band-aid and we're into that space, people. Now we use emails in schools or we use teams to communicate. And I think that's been a very helpful thing. But this is you know, Slicer and Rayner's talk, this is a, a global enterprise about how we focus on education. And when we narrow it into to, to education in WA and certainly Catholic education, this is how we're operating. And I think it's holding us in very good stead um, going forward. And of course, there's a greater interest in education now, which is fantastic. And we've got to pivot into this space to realise that it is a, a, not a panacea for all the ills of society, but it's certainly a player to support those children. So the two areas is a set of opportunities. One is about educational leadership development, and the other is certainly how we deliver educationally. And you know, being a good Catholic, I'd like to quote um, <coughs> Pope, who's become a saint. You know, we put the question without trusting optimism. Sorry, with trusting optimism. 
but without underestimating the problems we face. We can't be Pollyannaish about things. We have to be optimistic, but we certainly have to look at the issues and problems to resolve them collaboratively. So I just want to finish with this young man again, a student in any one of our schools, and how we can enable him to achieve the national goals for education, because that's our focus. We are very student-focused, and if any anything we've learned over the last two years is, is about being student-focused. It's not, you know, getting the best ATAR results or the graduation. It's all of those things because that enables that young person to move forward. Their lives are transformed through quality education. So I'd like to, um, again, thank you. Thank you to our leaders who work in our schools because you carry the can. You know, we can send you as much information at the end of the day. You're facing those families, you're facing those children. And I think that you do an incredible job in the leadership. In, in fact, I know that. And I'm very grateful for that. I think we all are very grateful for your leadership. You've held it together so well. And, um, I think, you know, I think... Um, <laughs> <laughs> so thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much for that, um, for that Deborah. It's so great that ACL could provide this opportunity for the three of you to get together and to talk where it's not Houston and we have a problem. <laughs> um, just a wonderful, um, beautiful example just again today of that collegiate collaboration that we have across the sectors. But thank you for all the, the thought-provoking ideas that, that each of you has presented to us. We are now going to invite each of the three others that Lisa has to step out of the room urgently, but hopefully she'll come and join us. If you can take some, um, the seats up there at the, at the table, that'd be great. Um, thank you, Valerie and Deborah. And we're going to open it up to the floor now. So um, we don't have microphones there. If, um, if for some reason we can't hear people, we may ask you to move out here. But all yes, all the speeches we project. Um, so we've got a, a few minutes to just open it up to the floor. So if there's anyone who's got any questions for Valerie, for Deborah, and please, when she comes back, um, or just any comments or contributions from your side based on what we've heard about the challenges and the opportunities that we face as educational leaders. Um, um, good morning everyone, I'm John Finner from Newman College. Um, a significant change last year, I think, was the uh, early offers to the students in, at, um, in that year 12 space. So we had students getting those offers come June. Um, so the question is, in light of that uh, stimulus, what's the future really in this space? in terms of one impact on students, in the case that happens again this year, which I suspect it will. So what is the impact really on, not just the teaching and learning um, for our students in this space or their response to it at that year 12 space, but what does it actually mean for the ATAR, or particularly pathways anyway, um, particularly in relation to our responsibility as educators at the secondary level, let alone what it means in the tertiary level. So that interface of conversation between the two sectors. Just as a quick comment on that, thanks John. What really concerns me is when students get an early entry. Now, Notre Dame University have always done that through portfolios and those sorts of things. But what happens when a student gets to uni? Because if they haven't been disciplined in the learning um, and, you know, into study and all of those sorts of things that, you know, school does offer and also accountabilities, what happens then? Because you're paying for units. And my concern is there's a justice issue here where students have gone into, a free, into an entrance into the university then what happens after that? Can I be honest, schools are very pastoral environments and they support that child through the hardship. And universities like to be in that space and some do better than others, but that's not always the case. So I, you know, not directly answering your question, but once a student does get into university, what happens then? And we've got to look at 
um, data to say, well, where's their trajectory through university life and do they graduate? But that's notwithstanding, you know, the ATAR uh, question, which is a big national question at the moment. So we can only but contribute to the, the commentary around this and, and let's hope that educators are listened to and those at the coalface. Just added to that, talking with SCARSA, the actual raw results last year were no worse than previous years. So the real fear that everyone was going to drop their load and not work hard um, didn't, actually, didn't actually eventuate, which is interesting to see. But there have, there, is, there have been many, many conversations about the future of ATAR, a lot of things written. Is that the best measure? Currently, it's the cheapest way for universities to select students, but it's, yeah, it's an interesting space. So I guess we better watch this space. My crystal ball isn't working this day. Thank you for that question. We've got another question up here. Um, thank you very much. That was very insightful. Um, I think what came across very strongly is that you all talked about embracing uncertainty and being more agile. Um, I was wondering what you think is the way to support teachers to create this space for students to um, be able to um, embrace uncertainty, be comfortable with the unknown. How can you support teachers to, to create that space? I think it, uh, so what my, my history was I was an economics and math teacher. I worked in um, the technology field as a program, a cobalt program and so forth in New York for seven years. I, when I came back, I took up a position of head of IT at a school. Suddenly the control I used to have in the classroom went out the window. And this is a long time ago, it's the early days of computing. So I had no tech support. Something went wrong, I was the one crawling under the table, plugging and unplugging and all those sorts of things. That's just, that's what you did back in the late 80s. So, but why it impacted my teaching was that suddenly I was in a position of not being in control of everything. So it's almost trying to support teachers feel they can still be really good teachers if they don't know everything. And this came out in certainly some of the stuff that Lisa was saying and what Deb was saying it's, it's, it's hard to create that environment, but I know some schools have tried to do that by providing unusual learning opportunities for teachers. So I was down to school at the beginning of, um, it was before lockdown, it was in January, uh, doing some work down in Albany with the school, and their afternoon session, and they were doing things like learning how to do fancy barbecues, learning how to go fishing, how to go crabbing, and their idea was to put the teachers out of their comfort zone, be the role of learner, but also being able to let go of but it's a, it's, a, yeah, it's a great question because we need to go to be agile. COVID, COVID might have happened, so let's not have another pandemic. Okay? <laughs> Any other thoughts on the notion of how do we prepare the young people or how do we prepare teachers to prepare young people to think adaptively, innovatively, creatively on their feet? If I can just explain yeah. part, the CARA are doing a consultation on decluttering the curriculum. The advocacy and the voice of educators needs to be in that review. So it's, you know, the cluttering of our curriculum and the desire to teach every single dot point. We've got to get our teachers into the space of, you know, the, the act of learning, not so much content as such. But I encourage you to contribute to the, um, the car review. I'm going to answer, answer as a psychologist. I, I, I just, I, and it's really hard to do this, but we need to provide children the opportunity to take risks and fail. And so we're so concerned about um, failing children in that regard or uh, that being a really risky space that we don't provide the opportunity for that to happen. And so um, uh, I just think we've got to get better at being able to take those risks. And it, and it goes from, 
you know, being able to play on uh, playgrounds to um, suffering the consequences of what happens actually if you don't hand in an assignment. Uh, but it's really hard to see children fail. But we've got we've got to allow them that opportunity uh, because you know. Um, my mother used to say this, you know, you just not, you know, don't have the same resilience as we had, you know. We went through the war, Lisa. But I, but I kind of, you know, there's a sense of that, isn't there? Like, um, you know, we're just not as tough as we used to be. Uh, but I think that's got something to do with the fact that we're not taking the risks. And I drank Martin who talked about the, uh, the metaphor of curling, the sport where you sort of smooth the ice, so the puck can glide over nicely. And he said that too often as, as educators, we are curling teachers. We try to sort of smooth the ice and make life easy for the kids so that I can just slide through. And just we're actually not helping young people by doing that. So instead, we should hack up the ice and create a positive and create a positive So I love that image of don't be a curling teacher, don't be a curling leader. And certainly the world has shown us the last year is the ice Thank you. Any other questions from the floor for our esteemed panel up here? Yes, please. Can I ask, with the circumstances that we're in, the, the, the professional, um, professional learning and development of leaders in schools, given the complexity and therefore the uncertainty that complexity creates, how does leadership development have to change? Educators, leaders need to be lifelong learners. And you know you, you can't say this is the, the model of leadership that we ascribe to because that's not going to serve you. So how we look at learning as leaders is important. Now I know in, in school world, in school life, and certainly in my office, you don't get the opportunity to read and read in that space to elevate opportunities. You're always caught into the, the operational elements. So leadership needs to spend time away. Now I know in some, some of our small schools, the principal's doing everything. During COVID times, they're also cleaning as well. So it's just how do we give opportunity and time to step away from the, the demand of leadership to breathe? You know, Fawn talks about the balcony and the dance floor. You do need to get into balcony space to look in the other side and then get back into the dance floor and make it all happen, so to speak. And the other part is delegation and leadership, to, to, you know, um, sharing the love and the load because I think that's really important. I know there's some deputies and assistant principals here that, you know, don't shy away from jumping into those conflict spaces because learning happens when you have these confronting situations. I start from a slightly um, more positive premise in terms of leadership. So I often hear the narrative around um, school leadership and yes, it is an increasingly complex job. Um, one of the most important jobs that we have um, of any profession and it's a really, really hard job. And the narrative often is it's a kind of job of doom and gloom, yeah? And nobody wants to be a principal. Why on earth would you be a principal? Because you're you know, signing your life away, basically. <laughs> um, actually, that's not what the data say. So the data do say that um, if you ask teachers if they would like to be a principal, fewer than 10% ever say, I want to be a principal, right? Um, however, when you ask principals if they... Um, uh, would go and do something else, you know. 97% uh, actually report that they love their job and their benefits outweigh um, the challenges, yeah? The other thing that happens is uh, when principals get into a principal job, they don't leave. 
right? So I can count on one hand the number of um, principals that have stepped back and said, actually, you know, can I, can I please be a teacher now? Um, they don't, and they do, and they don't leave, and they don't retire. Yeah. Um, and so, um, um, so getting a principal is like a little bit of expertise, you know, all that experience, but actually it's a bit of serendipity too, you know. You got to push them out the door. Um, but, uh, so, the, so the narrative around principalship is actually different to the data. And so my proposition is, and I, th and I actually I believe it, I think that our principals are incredibly well prepared to lead. Um, and we've just experienced that over the last 18 months. They are exceptional at leadership. Now, there is, I think the system's responsibility is to make sure that leaders have got the opportunity uh, to learn, but also they feel safe um, and they are trusted uh, they're trusted professionals, and I think that gives them the space not to have to know everything, um, to be able to ask the hard questions, and for them themselves to lead their learning. And, and so I come at it in a slightly, in a slightly different way. Um, and it might be a bit rose-tinted spectacles, but I do think we need to um, acknowledge the leadership and the development the principals are already doing. Certainly before everything Lisa and Emma said, what we have found, I guess, in a practical sense, has worked, particularly last year, a lot of this online, of course, was facilitating networks of leadership. No agenda, or they yes. set the agenda. We'd say, okay, look, come into a team's meeting, and we would do one, say, for small schools. Face-to-face, -face, we used to get 15. Online, we'd get 50, because all the regionals would call in. And it was just about sharing things and asking questions. So rather than saying, this is the agenda we're going to learn about, I don't know, transformation of leadership, um, come and just talk about things. How do you, how do you handle this? And they, we find that by sharing how they handle things, that everyone grows. So it's just a, it's, like, it's a way of going. We've just sort of many more network meetings over the last year and a half than we had before. Excellent. Well, ladies and gents, unfortunately, that's all we've got time for today. Um, I'm going to ask um, Gary, if you can, this is your cue to get ready, but I'm going to ask actually, just at the end, can I quickly ask all of the current members of the ACL State Executive Team, who's here today, to just quickly stand up and to just acknowledge these amazing people because they do a lot of hard work behind the scenes to enable events like this to really serve the educational leadership community. So we've got people from Catholic, from education, and from um, public sector on the executive. So thank you guys for everything that you do um, behind the scenes. It's really a wonderful team to work with. Um, and then I want to say thank you to our three speakers. Now, Gary's got three gifts there, but if you can hand it to, to three different people on the team, if you can come and hand it. And we just want to publicly thank um, Deborah, Valerie, and Lisa for for your wonderful and insightful thoughts and for, for coming to share that with us today. So thank you very much. Thank you.